and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by Hachette Australia. Kelly Rimmer is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today best-selling author of 13 novels. Writing both historical and contemporary novels, Kelly's titles include The German Wife, The Warsaw Orphan, The Things We Cannot Say and Truths I Never Told You. Kelly has sold more than 2 million books to date and her work has been translated into dozens of languages. If that wasn't impressive enough, in 2022, Kelly purchased the Collins Booksellers in Orange, near where she lives with her human and fairy families. And this year, Kelly is back with a brand new novel called The Paris Agent and set to be released by Hachette across Australia this week. This is a powerful, emotionally compelling novel that delivers everything you'd expect from one of Kelly's novels and indeed more. And I'm so excited to welcome Kelly back to the podcast today to chat about it. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Claudine. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And congratulations, my friend, on this incredible book. Thank you. That's really kind of you to say. Thanks. I knew I was in for a treat when I began reading, but I don't think anything really prepared me for the emotional punch lying in wait. Not only was the book rich in so much fine detail about these female SOE agents, but the grief and trauma experienced by their families and loved ones in the aftermath of the war was something you explored with such depth and sensitivity. So bravo, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly, there's been so much written about World War II, so many stories uncovered through fiction, but you have managed to find an angle that hasn't yet been explored, or at least not explored widely. So I wanted to ask you, when did you first know that this was a story you wanted to tell? It's a bit of a, a, it's one of these ones that have been in the back of my mind for a really long time. So my daughter's name is Violette, which is the same name as Violette Sabo, who's one of the uh, inspirations for this book. And so way back in probably 2010, 2011, when we were talking about baby names and my husband suggested Violet because he had a a relative with that name, I was doing the Google thing. And one of the first things that popped up is this incredible woman who I, so I fell down a Violet Sabo rabbit hole way back then. Um, But it was a case of, uh, you know, I wasn't, I was writing then, I was always writing, but I wasn't necessarily focusing on historical fiction then. And I I didn't really have a, a story to tell. I was just really obsessed with this amazing woman. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of her. I was randomly, as I am wont to do, listening to a history podcast as I walked my dogs one day a few years ago and I came across Diana Rowe who is the other character that I the other real life person sorry that I've used as inspiration for this book and it was it was actually that podcast that the ideas came together and off we went so yeah a couple of, probably a couple of years ago that this solid idea formed in my mind yeah so thinking about you beginning to write this book was there a particular or a specific piece of inspiration that set you on the journey to writing this story yeah, it was the it was a hearing on that podcast. The, the interviewer was talking about Diana Rowden's family and her mum in particular, who there was many years between Diana's death and her mum understanding just how remarkable Diana's service had been. And that that you know that scra- I scratched the surface then on this whole issue of you know at the end of the war the the SOE for the Special Operations Executive, which is the agency that my characters both are serving through 
there were there were many issues with it. There was internal compromise and there was disorganization and then records were destroyed accidentally and intentionally at the end of the war. But the handling of agents and families post the war really left a lot to be desired. And so it was that thought of this mum who thinks that her daughter's gone off and Got, knows her daughter's gone off and by by the time the war ends knows that her daughter's been serving with the SOE but he doesn't understand the remarkable things that her daughter did and the fact that she died a hero for years after the war so it was that 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 broke my heart for that woman but and for the family but it was that that was really the inspiration. So for those who haven't had the benefit of reading this book as I have I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the story. Yeah sure so I love to write multiple narratives in my books. So we have in 1970, we have Charlotte Ainsworth, who is our our main character. And she is the daughter of an SOE agent, Noah, who was, he was badly injured towards the end of the war. He was in an accident of some sort and has a, a persistent brain injury from that injury, as well as, as you can imagine, for anyone who served in the war, a significant amount of trauma that has kind of floated around in the back of his mind for decades. And Noah and Charlotte have just lost their beloved mum and wife, Geraldine. And in the aftermath of Geraldine's sudden death, they are talking about the past. And Noah in particular is starting to think that maybe it's time for him to look into his SOE service because of his brain injury. He's got some significant gaps in his memory. So that's kind of the impetus for the story. That's that's how we start to unfold this uh, these remarkable stories about these two female agents whose names are Josie and Eloise. And they are, as I said, inspired by Diana Rowden and Violet Sabo. So Josie and Eloise are agents serving with the SOE. And we meet them both as they're kind of arriving in France for their first missions. And we, we see how their service unfolded. As you said, the story is told from three points of view. And I certainly understood Fleur and Chloe's points of view or Eloise and Josie. They have code names. I actually have simplified their code name situation as much as I could, but they do have multiple names through the book. So you've kind of got to, <laughs> got to keep up. Suit. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I understood their points of view in the novel, but I was really interested to know why you chose the third point of view to be from Charlotte's point of view rather than, say, for example, Noah's point of view or uh, Josie's mother's point of view. Yeah, I was really interested in exploring the subsequent generations of these incredible heroes who were kind of used up and in some ways abandoned by different governments. And the idea for that came out of a conversation with someone who we were talking about something really difficult and they said, everything happens for a reason. And I got to thinking about how we assign meaning to things and that's how we can process them and and learn to live with particularly unexpected things in our life. And so I wanted to look at how the events of the war impact families forever. They don't, the war doesn't end and then everyone goes back to normal. People are changed forever by what happens during the war and they're changed as parents and as grandparents. And so I chose Charlotte because, and there's another kind of key character in the book too. I chose them to be central to my story because I wanted to explore this idea of they're raised by people who were changed for, for worse and for better by the events of the war. So how do they understand it and how do they derive meaning from their family histories? So from Charlotte's point of view, we learned that in the 1970s, there was still a great deal of secrecy surrounding the identity of SOE agents and many of the records of their service, as you said earlier, had been destroyed or were missing. Many of the families of these women simply had no idea what their role in the war effort had been and what had happened to them, right? Yes, and so I there's a character in my book 
a professor who's loosely based on a real historian, Michael Foote, Professor M.R.D. Foote, and he was the official historian to the SOE for the British government. And his whole career was actually about understanding what had what had happened, what had gone wrong, what had worked. But his work was shrouded by this intense secrecy for many, many years. And he had to keep requesting permission to publish a book about the SOE, which he ultimately did in kind of the late 60s. And I've used that book as like heavily in my research. But in my story, I've got a character. The job is based on Michael Foote's job, but the character is not based on Michael Foote. And my character, Professor Reed, his name is, he is you know, he's really constrained by the the intense, the, the records are still classified. He can't just give you a list of code names and names and say, happy days, go find the person you're looking for. So now he's trying to find someone who he believes saved his life during the accident, which gave him the brain injury. And he's he's kind of, they hit many, many dead ends just because of the secrecy around the agency. So going back a little bit to Charlotte, even though Charlotte's father Noah survived the war, she had no real idea of what he'd been through and obviously for all of these reasons you know everything was shrouded in secrecy and he himself had suffered trauma it was clear that he suffered not only physical injury but trauma from his service trauma trauma he was unable to deal with in the years following and something that Charlotte's aunt Kathleen said that kind of highlighted for me the senselessness and breathtaking cruelty of war which we all understand but at one point she says something like the SOE dumped Noah back into London and left him to his own devices Tell us a bit more about that and why you wanted to explore this in the context of this story. Yeah, this is not the first time I've kind of touched on this in my books because I think we, our culture has this awful, awful tendency to glamorise war and to, particularly male service in war. You know, it's about courage and masculinity and, and it's about ultimately overpowering the enemy. But there's a real cost to every single person who is involved in any kind of conflict. And particularly for people like the agents of the SOE, they were given a couple of months of training and then they were literally sometimes dropped into occupied territory and sent on these missions which were almost sometimes, you know, suicide missions. They were incredibly dangerous and so many of them did not survive. And even the ones who did survive, the the term PTSD was not coined in 1945. So these people came back to life deeply traumatised and they, they dealt with it the best way that they could. And some of them turned to alcohol, some of them had other problems, but no one was getting effective treatment or therapy because it didn't exist yet. And so I really am fascinated by the idea that this thing, which is so damaging and dangerous and terrible, we have elevated to this, you know, to all of the myths and the legends around war are often about about heroism and courage and masculinity rather than trauma. And so I, in, in this book, again, I've kind of tried to explore that. The impact of Noah's trauma, it doesn't stop when Noah is happily married and has a business and is thriving despite his disability, the trauma is still there and it has informed the way that he's parented and the way that he's been married and decisions he's made along the way. And so I think it's really important to give a balanced viewpoint of that. You can't glamorize war. There's no glamour in it. It's ugly and it's destructive and it's destructive for generations. So that's why, again, this is, as I said, I've, I've written about this before, but this is a different angle on that same theme. Now, you're talking about uh, Professor Foote's work in uncovering the stories of the SOEs that operated throughout the war, and this informed a lot of what you have written in this story. I wondered about these interviews that he conducted with the surviving members of the SOE post the war. And I wondered if you thought that his work helped families and war veterans deal with the lingering trauma associated with their service. 
Yeah, I think some there's power in telling your story. The context of the of the archival work that he did though was that it was again, you know, right from their first encounter with YesOE, these agents it was stressed upon them how secretive their work was and they weren't, they weren't to use their real names. They couldn't tell each other anything about their real lives. And that kind of persisted for decades after the end of the war. So yeah, I think there would be true, true power in, in being able to share with someone who you could finally talk about it, but even then it kind of got locked up. I'm sure it was helpful, maybe the first step in a journey for many people, but it was probably such a different context to even being able to talk about, you know, to talk to their families about what they'd been through or to have people understand truly the impact of of it on them. Yeah. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about the resistance circuits that operated throughout France and how it was that these otherwise ordinary women were recruited? Mm. Yes. So there were, there was uh, many SOE circuits within France. Each one had a code name. They were kind of uh, generic names like postmaster prosper was one and they were generally there was a structure of you would have a a leader a person who would coordinate the circuit and then there was a wireless transmission operator who was responsible for doing the double encryption of messages back to baker street in london and then receiving instructions for how they should persist with their work and then there would be a courier and the courier would operate you know in occupied territory ferrying messages and money and supplies around and connecting with local resistance groups who were so key to the soe's work so there were many circuits in france but for our for our you know female agents they were often recruited because they were people who looked like they might blend in. So they weren't recruited. There's some of the mythology around SOEs that they were all these stunningly gorgeous women who was, you know, the femme fatale sent into France to do glamorous things. They were actually chosen generally because they looked like they would just fit in. And so some of them may have been beautiful, but they weren't selected for their beauty. So they would be approached and then interviewed and it was quite a rigorous selection process. And if they happened to pass and they were trained with the men, so they were sent off to these various camps around the UK and for, for only a period of months where they, it was very intensive, often literally 24 hours a day, because while they were in training, they might be asleep and someone would burst in to do a mock interrogation or throw cold water on them in their sleep to see what language they reacted in, because they had to always be reacting in French and, you know, as accentless French as much as was possible. But they were housewives and they were secretaries and they, some of them might've had some limited military service. For example, Violette had served in the auxiliary uh, territorial service as a searchlight operator. But they were not, these were not hardened soldiers. They were just ordinary, very ordinary women with two, three months training and then they were on a plane. Yeah. And then to think that so many of those women were captured and tortured mm. is truly incredible. There was a statistic that for a wireless operator in particular, the average length of time they would be operating without capture was six weeks. And if they were captured, they were considered plainclothes assassins and they were treated incredibly harshly by the Nazis. So their fates were excruciatingly terrible if they were, as they, most of them were, captured. Speaking of that capture and the way they were treated by the Nazis, there was a term in your book that I'd never heard of before and it was Nacht und Nebel, mm-hmm. I think. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I can say that properly. Can you tell me more about this and what it meant for women like Fleur and Chloe? Yeah, so it was a special designation of political prisoners. It translates as night and fog. So the, the idea was that the Nazis would disappear them. The usual paper trail did not exist. They just went into the system and it, the the Nazis went out of their way to make it difficult to trace these women. So they tried to evaporate them. And 
they would have succeeded, but for one really determined SOE official. At the end of the war, Vera Atkins, who had been very senior with the SOE, she the British government was kind of keen to move on and, and just accept that there were dozens of missing agents and that was the way it was. But she, on her own money at first and on her own time, went into, you know, went onto the continent, went through France, went through Germany and tracked down most of these. Actually, I think in the end she found pretty much everyone who was missing. She interviewed the prisoners of war from the Nazis and she talked to locals and she tracked people's movements over several years. And so the reason we know what happened to Violette and Diana Rowden is because of Vera Atkins. Yeah. And so is that who Helen Ellwood is based on? That's correct. Yeah. So with the, I've got a character in my book. She, just because of the way that the book focuses so much on the agent's time in the occupied territories. So Helen Elwood is my Vera Atkins character and she, she's not a major character in my story, but she's kind of key to the way that the book resolves. Yeah, indeed. As with your previous books, Kelly, the emotional resonance of some of your scenes left me gutted. And I always wonder how it is that you manage to capture the mindset of your characters and write such devastating scenes. Where do you go in your mind when you're writing these? I spend so much time. I have only realised in the last few years how much of my work is not at the keyboard. I spend so much time thinking about who they are, what the setting is. If I can't picture it vividly in my mind, I'm not going to put everything I can see in my head in the story because that would be too much and the book would be, 50,000 words longer than it needs to be and it would be slow, you know. And and also I think I more and more I'm learning that you have to trust your reader and you have to give them enough gaps in the story that they can use their own imagination because otherwise it's not immersive. But I spend, I do, I spend a lot of time day walking the dogs, daydreaming. Go, I think about whatever scene I'm writing as I go to sleep every night. That is my magic time. And I don't even have a notepad beside my bed. It's just you know, you've got to play it through your head so many times so that you know it intimately. That's really tricky with a story like this one where, you know, there's some really tough scenes in this book that were hard to write and hard to kind of hard to daydream, not fun to daydream at all, but they were important enough that like if I was going to tell this story, I was going to have to write those scenes. I'm trying not to give too much away because I know your listeners probably haven't read the book, but they'll know it when they see it. Mm. (laughs) I think think they'll know what I'm talking about. But, you know, when you choose to write stories like this, you you are committing to doing the best that you can to get the detail right to honour the people who inspired it. So that means spending a lot of time in that world. Well, as I said before we started recording, just some of these scenes gave me full body chills. I felt so not only immersed in that scene, but immersed in the mindset of the woman from the point of view the story was being told. It is just such an incredible gift that you have. Thank you. Kelly, if there was one thing you would like readers to take away from this story, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I think I just, I think these women were so extraordinary. And often, as I said, the stories of the war are often about the men. And so I really love that there's been this trend in the last few years for women writers to write stories about women in during wartime and during history. And so I guess curiosity, if they if they finish the story and they're curious about the wartime service of these women, then I've probably done my job okay. Like I've I've taken a few liberties in this book. I've followed the history closer than I intended to when I started writing actually for as much as I could for both women. But I have there's things I could never have known. In particular, my character that is inspired by Diana Rowden has celiac disease. And I wanted to write about someone living with chronic illness during the war because 
people did not suddenly become healthy. <laughs> if anything, the opposite happened. So I was really fascinated to try and immerse myself in the story of someone who had this additional challenge, but was still strong and still thriving. And so that's fiction. And, you know, there's other things that I've changed slightly because it suited the story. But in this case, in this case of this book, I've written quite an extensive author letter so people can see what's fact and what's fiction. And I think at the end of the day, if they get to the end of the book and then they read the author letter and then they're curious or at least a little bit more aware of the women of the SOE, then I'll have done my job. Kelly, you have offered some fabulous tips to writers on this podcast before. So I wondered, is there anything you've learned about the writing of this book in particular that you didn't know about yourself as a writer before? Yes, I... So I'm a plotter, as we've discussed, I and I'm quite orderly and organised with how I write. But in this case, I had my thinking, my, the way that I had planned the story to unfold was probably I was starting it at the wrong point. I started as the women were recruited. And as I, the book was bloated and too long and it wasn't just that though, it was the wrong part of the story to tell. And so I had to let it go. And so even being obsessively organized and plotting, you still sometimes have to be willing to kill your darlings. It was really difficult to do that. But it but at the end of the day it was the right decision. So I think it I think this is my 14th book, but I'm still learning. Every new book is its own new thing. And so I think like right at the beginning of my career, I was writing just for the sake of writing and I had and I was throwing away words like there was no tomorrow. And I think even now I still have to do that to tell the story, to tell the best version of the story that I can. That's an incredible tip from someone who's written so I'm many sorry. Books. It's awful though. It's so <laughs> hard when you, when you spent hours. I know. I was like, there were many tears that went into the shedding of those excess words. I can tell you, but I think if I write well, hopefully I will, hopefully, you know, a hundred books and I'll still be, still be starting at the wrong point, still be having to rewrite, still be, you know, it's just to tell the best story that you can, you've got to be willing to revise and revise and revise at any cost. I'm very sad for you that you had to let those <laughs> those words go, but I think it's really heartening for writers who will be listening in to this podcast to know that even at, you know, the level of experience that you have, that sometimes things don't go mm. according to plan and you really do have to sit and think really hard about whether you know, for example, it is the right place to start your story or Absolutely. you know, whether these scenes are needed. Yeah, it's it doesn't matter. I'm sure it is no matter how long your career is, every new book has its own lessons to teach you. And one of the things that I learned when we last saw each other in Orange, in fact, was that you dictate much of your books using yes. um, a dictation software. Yes. I was fascinated by this. I can't tell you. <laughs> I've just thought so much about this. I wondered if you could tell us more about that. Yes. So it started because I got Ross River fever and my hands were, I had joint pain in my hands and I had a deadline and I was determined not to miss it. And so I at first I transcribed and I had someone that would, you know, type it up, transcribe it for me. So I was recording into one of those old school, you know, handheld recorders. And then I, I've the pro see, the thing is I'm always trying to write conversationally. Um, my books, I want it to feel like you're sitting down with a friend having a conversation. And so there was something about that process. that just felt so natural. And I, I started thinking around with Dragon Dictate, which is kind of the most well-known dictate software and it took months to train it it was no easy undertaking and but for but for my virus you know wrangled hands I probably wouldn't have persisted but 
I'm so glad I did because now that's just my process. So I plan out the book and I set it up in Scrivener and then I dictate into, I don't ever dictate into Scrivener because it doesn't have talk, but it doesn't play nicely with Dragon. So I'll mm. dictate into Notepad or Word and then move it across into Scrivener. But it basically means that I tell the story, literally tell the story the first time through and then I edit it on the keyboard. So it's messy. But it's very, very accurate now that I've been training it for years, and it, and it just it's just my process now. I I think I can I'd still do write with the keyboard sometimes, particularly if I'm away from my office. But it's just it's just um, I don't know for me it's just been exactly the right move. Just fluked upon it because of bad luck actually. So yeah, I still find it difficult to wrap my head around how you can dictate a whole book, yeah, hundred a hundred thousand words or so, yeah, and yeah. have it yeah. come out coherent. Because I'm the kind of person that thinks best with typing mm, I, can't, mm. I, I may not be able to articulate those words out loud but I can certainly articulate better on the page so I mm, find the process mm. just fascinating it's about finding what works for you and it's not that's not just the case with dictation or typing it's it's do you write every day or do you not do you do you do a messy first draft for most people that works but for some people it doesn't do you know do you write in a cafe or in your office there's no right answer so every single one of us has got to experiment until we find the things that just get you into that flow state quicker so I, I find that magical the fact that you know you and even the the way that you could give 10 writers the same idea the same word count the same amount of time that no two are going to tell the same story. That's what's so powerful for aspiring writers. You've got to keep writing because no one can tell it the way that you can. Literally, that is like, that's the driving force, I think, of my whole career. And whenever I talk to aspiring writers, I always say that. Mm. You can't give up because no one else can do it in the whole world, not the yeah. way that you can. So it's so cool. It's so cool. It is very inspiring for all of those aspiring writers out there listening to this podcast. Keep going. Keep going, indeed. <laughs> Kelly, listeners may be interested to learn more about your purchase at the local bookshop in Orange. Yes. Uh, yes. Was it last year? <laughs> yes, it was last year. Uh, one year next week, I think. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so how did that come about and how has it impacted your writing work if at all yeah that's a good question um so it's my bookshop it's been my bookshop forever and the previous owners were very keen to retire and I had had in the back of my head for a long time that if they were ever ready to retire that I would I would love for it to you know become our family business and then I heard that they were selling it and it all just fell into place the timing was really good and really bad because that's how life works (laughs) And so we purchased it last year. I have I don't manage it full-time. Writing is my full-time job. It is the full-time job of my dreams. So I have a manager and an assistant manager who work in the store and we are, we have a good, good cohesive team and, you know, but what, how it's impacted my writing, I think, first of all, it's easy to forget how many amazing stories come out, you know, because when you go to the bookstore as a consumer, you're, there's lots of great covers and, you know, but there's so many, it's just like there, there's so many great writers, especially Australian writers. We are like killing it. We are, there's so many brilliant Australian stories coming out. And I think book selling is, oh, it's such a specific art. And as a writer, it just makes me so grateful because booksellers make careers they really really do we had this one kid's book that one of my booksellers read in in our store and loved and she was so excited about it and she has sold I think we were the top selling store nationally for that book at one point maybe still are because she has 
hand sold that book into schools, into he's given it to families and said, take this home and read it. You are going to love it. She has single-handedly made that. I mean, it was already going to be a success, but she has really, you know, it, really individual booksellers, individual bookstores do make writers careers. So it just makes me really grateful. I love that story. And in fact, I was at a festival last weekend and we were talking about that very same thing. There is nothing like being hand sold a book by a passionate 100%. bookseller. Yeah. Um, 100%. It, it is, there is nothing on earth like it. I mean, BookTok mm. is one thing and Bookstagram is another thing, but going into a bookstore and having a dedicated bookseller come up to you and say, what do you like reading? Well, if you like this, then you're going to love this. Yeah, so 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. And talking about synergies for you and your work, I think that is brilliant. So mm. how many how many cool authors have you met since owning the bookstore? Oh, we're only just getting started. We have all of these great plans. Central West, I think, has uh, of New South Wales, where I live it's just close enough to Sydney that we're accessible but just far enough away that we sometimes get forgotten and so we're really hoping to build something quite special we've got some amazing bookstores out here not just ours there is there's incredible bookstore at Mudgee and Forbes and Bathurst and Dubbo and so we want to you know bring out great authors and have remind publishers hi we're here <laughs> send them our way and we'll we'll all look after them because we are a really passionate reading culture out here we love books and we love Australian stories so we're only just getting started ask me again next year <laughs> <laughs> by then we'll have all many amazing amazing events happening and book clubs at the shop and all kinds of things <laughs> well I think that's wonderful and if there are any publishers listening and or authors who are interested you know that would make a lovely little tour of oh yes oh Central yes West, we are uh, we South are Wales. we are the place to be yeah absolutely and, <laughs> and speaking as someone who has been to your beautiful bookshop it is divine absolutely isn't divine. it isn't it so sweet and we're actually expanding early next year so it'll be it'll be quite different next time you visit probably Wonderful. I can't wait. Kelly, are you working on something else at the moment? I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to ask you because <laughs> you're obviously a very busy woman and this book has just come out and it's yet to come out in the, in the US. But just thought I'd ask. I am. I can't tell you much about it yet, but it's another historical. So watch this space. Okay. Next year. Next year. <laughs> Fantastic. So speaking of the Paris agent going elsewhere, when is it going to be released in other territories? Uh, yes, yeah, so July 11th. And I can't remember where and when else, but July 11th is the US and Canada. And the UK, a paperback is out later this year, but it's out digitally this week. Okay. So if listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you, Kelly? Yes. Kellyrimmer.com is my website and there's links to everything else from there. It's the easiest, easiest way to get to my social media. Kelly, it's always a pleasure to chat with you about your books and all things writing. I absolutely loved this book as I know many of your loyal fans will Thank too. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books again today. Thanks, Claudine. It's lovely to speak to you. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinechanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.